One of the questions we get asked all the time is advice about if someone should become an educational therapist and if they should, how to go about it. Today, we welcome Kylie Yates to the podcast. Kylie reached out to us over email a couple months ago to ask this exact question, and we decided to invite her onto the podcast. We're excited to share our views about how to become an educational therapist. We're speaking for ourselves on this one, Smarties. And we hope that this episode answers some questions for all of you out there who have been wondering the same thing. Also, make sure you listen to the end of the episode where we reveal for the first time who sings our jingle. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 69 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today on the podcast, we have Kylie. Hi, Kylie. Hello. So welcome. <laughs> I feel so honored. I'm fans of your show. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you for saying that. So this is a different episode. This for us? Yeah. This is a little bit of a different episode for sure. You are being mentors and guiding me on the right path. <laughs> I like it. It's kind of fun. I like that we're helping kind of next generation. Yeah. Spreading the word. Kylie, did you yes. know about educational therapy before our podcast? Uh, no. And I did like a Google search and I was trying to find other fields with my credentials and masters that I could enter into. And I came across the word educational therapist and I was like, what is that? <laughs> and of course, had to keep on searching. And then I came across, what is it, the AET? Yes. And then looked for some therapists in my area and found Stephanie and then went to your website and then you had a podcast. So that's where I found you all. And then I started binge listening, of course. <laughs> well, thank you for doing that. And I got to say, Steph, this is one of the reasons we started the podcast, is it not? Absolutely <laughs> one of the reasons we started the podcast. We wanted to build awareness about educational therapy. So the idea that someone would be introduced to it through our podcast is so rewarding. It really is. And for those of you that don't know, the Association of Educational Therapists is what she's referring to, AET. So our mission is to help more kids and to also help more people who would be great at it, I think. So I'm excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm so excited too. <laughs> Well, Kylie, why don't you share what yeah. your question to us? You reached out to us over email and yes. we're like, let's do this on air. Yeah. Because it'll be easier, but because other people will want to hear. So I know there's different pathways to get into educational therapy. And I know that some of your other coworkers or your employees, Stephanie, are maybe what they call learning specialists or they're working on getting their certificate. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, should I just go and get my certificate while maintaining my full-time job? Should I go part-time with my job and work part-time in the field and see if I like it and then go in and get the certificate? Do you recommend online or in person? Just 
from your experience. Okay. I have a lot of follow-up questions. First <laughs> of all, we get this question a lot about kind of our pathway into educational therapy. I think we talked about it in episode zero, zero, like who we are and how we got here, but we're only going to be able to speak from the benefit of our experience. And also what you're sharing about Steph's practice. I also have learning specialists in my practice. That's kind of our designation for what we're calling them, because sometimes there's super talented people out there who would be so wonderful at the one-to-one remediation, but they haven't gotten their certificate yet. But we still want to capitalize on their talents and bring them in and mentor and teach them, right, Steph? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So I think my question to you is two parts. The first is, what is appealing to you about educational therapy? And then the second is, you know, you're asking, should you go full-time, part-time? Mm-hmm. That's like a family structural yeah. decision. Let's just start with the educational therapy, like your journey of being a teacher and why educational therapy is looking like the next step for you from teaching. I want to hear about that. Okay. Well, when I was in my master's program and working on my mild to moderate credential, of course, we heard about the best tools and the best practices. However, when you are working in public education, it's just the free and appropriate education, which is not always the best. So in my experience of working with students with special needs, there were some students that we didn't even service because EDCO didn't even acknowledge their disability. Mm-hmm. So it became very frustrating as someone uh, working with them, those limitations. And I've always enjoyed working one-on-one. I've done both the resource specialist program and the special day class experience. Mm -hmm. And that RSP type model might be similar to your model, depending on how I would write it on their IEP. Sometimes they would need one-on-one and sometimes they would need, you know, just a small group. Mm -hmm. And I loved collaborating with the school psychologist, their families, doctors, counselors and even the speech and language pathologist, the occupational therapist, and Mm -hmm. sometimes the adapted PE specialist. Mm -hmm. I just loved getting to know the whole picture. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One of your other podcasts, one of your guests mentioned synergy. I love that synergy Mm -hmm. of the team and trying to help the child as best as I could. I love that you're bringing up this aspect of Mm -hmm. collaboration and kind of the team effort, because I think a lot of the times when people think of educational therapy, or maybe when they're hearing us talk about it, we don't talk about the collaboration that we have with other professionals on the team as often. And the wonderful thing about being an educational therapist is we operate as the case manager. Yeah. We're taking information from the parents, we're taking information from the school, we're taking information from the other therapists on the team, and kind of guiding what's going to happen and making sure everybody's kind of on the same page. And that's a super fun part of our Mm -hmm. job that doesn't necessarily occur within the 50-minute sessions that we have with our client. It's not the remediation piece, right? Yes. It's great. I think that you're coming, because I think a lot of people love the idea of the one-on-one work with the client. And maybe shy away from the other piece, but it sounds like that's part of what would be appealing to you, which is awesome. Yeah, I loved actually doing my achievement assessment portion. And we would all do our reports together at my site. 
and I would actually do my portion of the academic achievement and kind of do a, an analysis of their skills and strengths. And sometimes, especially for students who had ADHD or autism, their scores might have shown that they were average and there was no discrepancy. However, students with autism might have had difficulty on some of the mathematical reasoning or the questions that are like the why or the how you would see that they would have errors on those consistently. Mm-hmm. And then through my training with Orange County Department of Education, we could qualify them that way because we could see that now that they're in third grade, they're just having difficulty. Now, definitely when they move on, as it gets progressively more difficult, they're going to kind of break down and we need to give them support now. Yeah. And I think that's great. The one-on-one is certainly something that, you know, you have to have the backgrounds and it sounds like you do of being able to work with everybody and collaborate. And then, you know, also knowing where to focus efforts, Mm -hmm. right? And we talk a lot about taking aim with students because you can't do all the things at once. So it's important as an educational therapist to know what it is that is the most important thing to tackle first. Yes. And Mm -hmm. to build that student back up, right? Exactly. Sometimes it's being ready to learn. Sorry to interrupt, but being able to explain to everyone on the team why that's where you're starting. Exactly. And sometimes in the public education setting, the administration, um, they don't understand that or maybe they do, but they just want to see the process move quickly. It's about resources. Yeah. Yeah. Numbers. and Yeah. Yeah. It's numbers. And this is the real luxury of educational therapy. The fact that we get to work one-on-one The fact that we get to work with families that we choose to work with and we get to be kind of the decision makers is a true luxury. There's some risks with becoming an educational therapist, which it sounds like we should spend a little bit of time talking about that. But obviously, Steph and I love it and can't speak. I mean, we have the podcast like we can't speak more highly of our profession and we want to attract more good people to it. Yeah. So what are the fears and what are the questions that we can kind of help guide you? Um, Well, I've actually been given an opportunity before I spoke with you and I haven't shared. My district had reached out to me to see if I wanted to do a job share. And I said, oh, yeah, because I might be able to expand my horizon into looking into more into educational therapy. Yeah. What is a job share? The last 10 years that a teacher is working and they can retire and they can work part-time, but still earn what they call full year's credit. Okay. So many teachers opt to do that in their last 10 years because they might be older and would just like to kind of phase out. So now that they're doing that, they're asking other teachers to share the job with them and the way this teacher wanted to do it was she wanted to start the school year. So she's doing the first 93 days and I'm doing the last 93 days. Oh, wow. Okay. So in the beginning, we're going to kind of train together and plan together and set everything up and introduce ourselves to the parents. But then after that, I pretty much will just collaborate with her and check in with her. And then in January, I will take 
over. So I feel excited, like, well, I can either start dabbling mm-hmm. in the field or I could join some online courses. So I feel excited that this opportunity has landed my way. <laughs> it sounds like the universe is kind of guiding you a little bit. I like when things like that happen. Yes. I think that's cool. I mean, I think the biggest thing that Rachel and I really firmly believe is that as an educational therapist, we have been certified through our association. And we're really big about making sure that if you're an educational therapist, you've had the right training and you've been Mm -hmm. identified. It's clear that you are an educational therapist then. So that's one of the reasons why you saw on the website we call people who are not yet certified learning specialists. So that is usually the best place to start your journey on becoming one. And I don't know if, Rach, you want to jump in, but I would say one of the biggest things that we say to do is to go through the association and find out if there are any holes in your education that they might have you take a class or two, sometimes it's a few, to get certified through them. And I think that on the flip side, taking the classes and becoming certified is one thing. I think there's the other dimension of starting out as a learning specialist, you know, especially for you, if you do have time to start dabbling in it and trying it, but just not calling yourself an educational therapist yet, is what I would say. What would you say, Rach? I want to explain a little bit more about why we're a little uptight about the title. And the reason is, is because unlike occupational therapists, unlike psychologists, unlike speech pathologists, we do not have licensure, at least in the state of California. So what that means is that anybody can really go out there and call themselves an educational therapist. And for someone like staff and for someone like me, who've been through a program of certification and have come up through the association, that feels undermining to the work and effort that we've already put in. And it's not to say they're not a good clinician. Absolutely. So I, yeah. And I think sometimes this happens because people don't know. Yeah. Like, I think sometimes it's very unintentional, but it's important to us that, I mean, when Steph and I are hiring, which we're kind of always in a mode of hiring, we say first and foremost that we want someone who's certified, but we're also open to people who are in the process of. You said you had a mild to moderate background. Is that a master's? I do have my master's in special education, and I have my educational specialist level two in mild moderate disabilities with the added on autism certification. I think before you even like think about taking classes, I think you have to get on the phone with the association if you can get them on the phone. And if you need help getting connected with them, just let us know. Yeah. And find out what you need to take. But get all your classes that you've had and all your classes that you had in that master's program, because my master's degree is in special education and mild to moderate as well. And I did it with the intention of doing the educational therapy. The whole time I was in our master's, I thought I was getting a master's in ed therapy. Did I not, Steph? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When I got my degree, I was like, oh, okay. Because I have a feeling you probably have the vast majority of what you need in order to become a part of the association. I feel like ethically responsible. That's just my values. And I'm just wondering 
Is it something that you see in the future that maybe California or I don't even know if other states do it where they might open this up to where you can start billing? Insurance, you mean? Yes. So I can give my very honest answer about what we think. Mm which might be different from what we hope. We hope yeah, that we hope. we're yes. able to bill insurance because it's one of the reasons we do this podcast. Like one of the reasons that Steph and I started this project was to expand awareness, but it was also to provide access to families who can't private pay for this and are limited financially. So we give away a ton for free on the podcast because there are people in all sorts of parts of the U.S. that educational therapy doesn't really exist it's really clustered in like three or four major cities. And so as far as licensure and billing insurance, I don't think insurance wants to pay educational therapists. They don't want to pay therapists. So they don't want to pay. Yeah. So it would be great. I mean, Steph and I were talking before we even met with you this morning about some ways that we can incorporate some other people into our practice. Mm-hmm. And there's other ways we can do that. But as we grow, this is very important to me that we can provide broader access. I don't know. We'll have to see kind of what happens with that. I I know that it's deeply a part of the mission of the Association of Educational Therapy. It's a state-by-state thing. And I think one of the biggest things that I've heard is part of the problem is that there aren't enough of us yet for them to really take notice and want to spend the money. So educational therapy has only been around for about 30-something years, and oh wow, it's too new. And, you know, it was started in L.A. by some amazing women who have grown it. Who are still involved. You know, we're wanting to spread the reach even more because so often, I don't know, just even on the street, like Rachel and I have been out and nobody has heard what we do. And when they hear it, so often – People are very enthralled by what it is that we do and that it's actually a thing. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of interest. And actually, one of the most recent employees to come into the practice just left teaching because she wanted to go on this route instead because she was feeling some of the same things. So the more that we can bring awareness and let people know about it and it gets more momentum, there's some potential in the future. The insurance thing I think is different. I think licensure is the big step that's the most important, whether insurance covers or not, because regardless, you can be licensed as a psychologist or occupational therapist or physical therapist or whatever it is from the state of California and still not take insurance. So I think they're two separate things. And I hope one day that they do, that it becomes licensure, because I think it's just as important as other things. Mm-hmm. And as we, you know, get it out there, the more people that we can have on board and rise the tide, as Rachel always says, that's our mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like right now, most of your population might be mild to moderate. And I think maybe some of the professions that do more the moderate to severe mm-hmm. can have access to like ABA therapy, which is billed with insurance or exactly speech pathology. Never really thought about it, but that's probably a good distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Steph, I think you have some more severe students than I do, but I would say the vast majority of our practices are mild to moderate kids. Yeah, I have a couple of severe, but right. most of the people that call that find out about educational therapy or interested are usually the mild to moderate, for sure. It's the kids that are doing average, the kids that 
are, you know, struggling with anxiety or not doing as well or taking too long to do things or just don't like learning anymore, those kinds of things. But yeah, I think that makes sense. I know that there's some medical diagnoses that the school doesn't even recognize, right. like dyslexia, dyscalculia. Mm-hmm. They yeah. don't recognize those. And sometimes we would have to say that it was something else. Um, visual or learning mm-hmm. processing. Yeah. And we had like a little bit of training on Linda Mood Bell and some other programs, but not the whole programs. But some savvy parents know and will ask for those right. programs. There's another path that almost it seems like you'd be a good fit for, which is to be a parent advocate for parents in the public school system, but private. Thought of that too. And um, before that, I wanted to be a dance therapist because I have a dance background. Uh huh. That's how I got into special education. I just kind of had my own little private practice actually in Redondo Beach, Hermosa, and Manhattan Beach. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I would go to the preschools, the private preschools, and I would teach dance. And I would always tell the teachers, hey, I will do like a free trial for students that you think would benefit. And then I'll put a little letter in the box for their parents, and then they can sign up. Slowly, I started getting some students that had ADHD or some Down syndrome children and children that maybe were born intoxicated Mm -hmm. and had needs. And I was like, wow, this is kind of fun and this is really good for them. Mm -hmm. And how can I get into this field? And I was kind of just led into special education and then thought about dance therapy. And their recommendation was, well, if you really want to, why don't you get your EDD and educational psychology and then you can kind of have a private practice and if you wanted to, Bill, but I'm not sure how that works or if I have the years left in me to do that. I want to say, I think this sort of comes along with the territory. A lot of people are afraid to leave full-time jobs because of insurance, because of, you know, the benefits. Their own insurance. Right. Like our our own health insurance. Yeah. Sorry, not to be clear. Yeah. And a lot of people worry about being able to bill insurance. And- I think those are separate. Those things shouldn't stop you because you can get insurance for yourself and pay for it. You can have private clients. There's a lot of therapists that don't take insurance because you can't afford to live. So I think if you can take that out of the equation and do what it is that you really just want to do, you will make it happen. Mm -hmm. I want to dive in, but this is a conversation I had with a good friend of mine. She teaches actually TK um, and Mm -hmm, Kinder mm -hmm. and I nominated her and she's actually the California teacher of the year. Oh, very cool. That's so great. (laughs) And I was trying to like, you know, listen to this podcast because you would be great at it. But she said, oh, I'm concerned that we wouldn't be able to help the students that are from families that are at risk and where we teach is in Anaheim. So there's a lot of homeless families and Then one of my daughter's teachers said, well, we have a nonprofit and all of our services that we do in the schools, we offer for free because we just go and get grants every year. And I was like, oh, well. (laughs) This is something that hits very close to home for me. I'm well aware that the majority of the kids that have the luxury of getting to come to educational 
therapy have the luxury of other things in their life too. And so for Steph and I, the avenue that we've kind of like establishes this podcast, but there's a ton that you could do, including having a private practice where you buffer other clients so you can take clients on a lower sliding scale. Mm -hmm. If you open up a nonprofit, the first three years, you can decide whether you want to be for-profit or non-profit. Oh, I have no idea. I've never... Okay. Yeah, I've I've kind of been looking into it just because it's always been a dream of mine to have one day my private practice. My mom tells me I was named after Dr. Kylie on a show, Dr. Marcus Welby, MD. Mm -hmm. uh, So I've always just had this dream of like, oh yeah, I have a license plate that says Dr. Kylie. (laughs) Uh, And my own private practice and... I've always used dance as kind of a way for me to learn or to kind of just get through life. So that's why my email is Happy Feet Dancer. And uh-huh. oh, that's cute. Oh, it's spelled wrong, and I'm like, no, it's F E A T S. Like when you defeat something and you conquer it. Oh, that's it. cute. Here's the thing. One of the things that I remember when we were in school, there was this assignment where we had to sit down and say, "What do you want your career to look like with educational therapy?" and I could not have imagined in a million years what it would be like today, that day that we had that assignment. Because I was like, I don't know that I could handle having a private practice. I don't know that that's what I want. You know, there's a lot of fear and all of that. But I think if you wanted to be an educational therapist and incorporate a lot of dance, you absolutely could. Go for it. And just have that be your niche. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, Rachel always reminds me about not letting perfection stand in the way of progress. We were just talking about it before. We could not have had the practices we have at this point in the podcast and all of that without each other. Because I never would have stepped out and done all of this because I'm the perfectionist that wants everything to be perfect before it goes out and all of that. Me too, yeah. But you don't need to. You really honestly don't. If I were you, that's what I would do. I would get in touch with the association. I would find out what classes you need to become certified. Do that. Start there. And then I would start incorporating your dance into the teaching. I mean, you become known for certain things in your community anyway. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, stuff specialties, my specialties, kind of what our practices focus on, that's emerged over time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want to make sure people know that like what we've built was not built in a day. Yeah. And it's taken several years. And, you know, you asked a question earlier on online classes, in-person classes, the benefit of in-person was meeting stuff Mm -hmm. for me and meeting not just stuff, the other people in our cohort. Yeah. That being said, if online had been an option, I would have 100% taken it at the time because it would have fit into my lifestyle. I was working full time while uh, teaching preschool while we were in grad school. Steph was as well. Yep. And I would say the majority of the people in our programs were. Yeah. It was designed for working professionals. And, you know, it was a lot. Those three and a half years that we were in school. Well, I was in school a year longer than Steph, but Mm -hmm. it was a lot. But 100% would do it all again in the exact same way. Based off how everything has kind of turned out. I kind of have the similar experience of doing that, but I'm a little bit more realistic because I'm a mom and I have an almost nine-year-old daughter. So there's that aspect. Well, that's something also to consider. I was going to bring that up. Steph and I primarily 
work after school hours. I mean, we're recording this like during the morning, which is when we work on the podcast, but we work all day on our private practices. We wake up in the morning, we're doing something for work. Just so happens we see clients in the later afternoon, but that's the hours that kids are available. It's also the hours that your daughter would be home and around. So that would have to be something that you would have to know kind of going in that the hours that you'd be working, unless you structure it in a different way, maybe like saying I'm only going to work Saturday and Sunday mornings or something like that. So you can be available during the week, which you can totally do when you're in practice for yourself Mm -hmm. and just say, this is what I'm working and like keeping your boundaries firm. But that's something else to consider. Not even sure if I want to do private practice because I want to make sure that I like it first. So that's why I'm like, I want to dabble in it and try it to make sure that this is something that I want to invest in. I don't have the luxury of being a young professional. I'm 48. So, you know, I have a lot of decades ahead of me, but I... Yeah, I will say our cohort was divided into these two groups of the younger people who were going to make educational therapy their profession. And we all did have classroom experience for the most part, but there were some younger people who were going directly into Mm -hmm. it. And then it was the group of older people who had been teachers for a long time who were looking to scale back their hours, who were looking, quite frankly, to make more money, who were ready to step out of the classroom a little bit. There's another avenue that you can take as an educational therapist, which is in high demand, at least in my area of LA, they're looking for learning specialists in schools and primarily in the private schools up here. But if you want to have more traditional hours If you need the reliability of a certain amount of money on each paycheck, if you want the health insurance, if all these other things, if you want to work at a school where your kid can go to school, that kind of thing, private practice isn't the only option. Mm -hmm. And I believe LAUSD also hires educational therapists. So your options are open. Yeah, there's a lot of different avenues you can take with it. It might come out that you know, when you find out what classes you need to take, it might be one or two that you could take online Mm -hmm. and that'd be it. Mm -hmm. And you know that you like doing all the things already. So it wouldn't hurt if you have the resources to just take the classes that they say. It doesn't cost anything to ask the association what you need and then start there because marketing yourself as an educational therapist that's certified to the schools is definitely something that you could follow and find something. There seem to be a lot of jobs for that. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel that there's a little shift in education. I mean, we're on technology right now and technology is kind of changing the way that education is received. Did you do some of your sessions online as well? Do we work with kids virtually? Yeah. Yes. Yes. But it has to be the right circumstances for that to be an effective use of everybody's time. Because, you know, in my practice, we're primarily working with kids with attentional issues. So getting them to stay in the screen with you, it is, (laughs) you know, like it has to be the right personality fit. But yes, we both do virtual sessions. I've worked with kids on the East Coast before virtually. It just kind of depends. I feel like so excited and motivated right now. I'm going to be doing that stuff. And well, I have this luxury of time, even though I'm working part-time, I have full benefits from my employer. Take advantage. Yes. So, and you should take advantage of it and figure out what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And I have my partner that I'm job sharing with. She wants to do this for 
maybe three to all 10 years. So, and I can, you know, decide at any time I want to just keep doing the job share or I can go back to full time or I can just smoothly transition into something yeah. else. So yeah, it's, the universe is talking. Rachel. Yes, it's telling you. It is. The universe is absolutely telling you to explore. Are there any other questions while you have us that we can answer for you? I know that on California Teachers Association and NEA, there's this big shift, especially for teachers who service special needs students, that teachers now um, get liability insurance. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you as professionals have? Yes. Yes, Yes. we absolutely do. We both rent spaces. It's one of the things that's required as from our landlords as well. Yeah. But we have also added on extra insurance because we have employees working for us. So there's other responsibilities yeah. that we get with that. We have professional. We have, you know, the liability and stuff also. But we do have professional because, you know, you need to protect yourself. But, you know, that being said, it's not unreasonable. Okay. And have you ever been asked to go to IEP meetings at the school site or yep. to yep. go to a manifestation determination meeting? Or... No, I've never been to one of those. No. But I've been to the IEP meetings. My clients that have hired lawyers, I've worked with the lawyers on things. And I've been to some meetings over the phone, not just been in person also. So I help where needed and guide and you know, if it's out of my scope, I refer to other people that can help. But you can be honest and give your professional opinion without... Oh, 100%. Yep. It's not yeah. the same liability as you have with the school district. Yeah. We have like this slippery slope of what we can Oh, no. No, we work for what ourselves. We cannot say. Yeah. That's the biggest luxury is that we work for ourselves. And oftentimes, we're one of the only people on the team who can be that frank with families. (laughs) And so that's actually something that I look for in the people that I'm hiring is their comfort level telling truth to power, so to speak. The worst thing that's ever going to happen to us really as a result of being honest about what we're observing with the parents is that they'll decide to stop working with us. And I've never had that happen. What I find is that, first of all, we're being hired as the expert and that's how we're treated. And that's how we're viewed by the parents. They're looking for the expertise, but also they're grateful Yeah, that someone yeah. has told them. Yeah, that was one of the other hard parts because you mentioned being a case manager. That's what a resource specialist is, is a case manager. However, you're still viewed as a teacher. And when you give expert advice to an administrator, you have to be very delicate in how you give that information. That was always hard, especially when I first came out of school, I was like, yeah, a know-it-all and was like, what do you mean you don't know this? <laughs> and did not go over very well professionally. But. Right. I mean, it takes skill. Yeah. And both Steph and I have done trainings in our practices on how to communicate in an effective way that's honorable, respectful, and compassionate to the families that we're working with. But it's also an expectation of the job. I mean, we let parents know that you're going to know what we think. Yeah. And probably sooner than you expect because we see it very quickly. Mm-hmm. So I'll just give an example from my practice. I've been working with a family for about a month and a half. And I just had a sit down with the mom where I explained to her 
lovingly that my primary concern in their family unit was her relationship with her husband and not what was going on academically or learning wise for her kid. Even though her kid's stuff is significant and should be dealt with, the relationship between her and her husband caused me more concern about what I was observing. And it was a really productive conversation that ended with I'm giving them referrals. So I like being able to do that because I feel like our impact is tremendous, but you have to have a certain amount of confidence to be able to say it. And when you're newer in the field, just like you were sharing, like when you're a newer teacher doing this kind of stuff, it's really hard. Yeah. But experience is the benefit, right? Yeah. I wanted to always share that because I just feel like ethically that's the responsible thing to do. It was just hard for me, my expert advice to be accepted with everyone. I did have one principal that would come to me very often and ask for my opinion and would let me place my students Mm -hmm. with different teachers based upon the teaching and learning style. And that was awesome because the students benefited and the families were happy. And I noticed that there was a crossover. And I think in other states, they actually have giftedness under special education. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my students with autism, they had gifted IQ and they actually did well in those classes. But those kids that are gifted also have special needs, even though their achievement is off the charts. Twice exceptional. Twice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that we all find our groove, right? And I think that you'll find yours for sure. This is an exciting period of time for you as you figure everything out. But your first step, get in contact with the association, get your transcripts. It'll help if you have your syllabi too. Mm -hmm. That's a tall order. Okay. But that's where you should start because you might be surprised. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I just must say what sometimes I subject my daughter to having to listen to this in the crowd. But, and she uh, she loves singing your tune. Oh, that's um, so cute. Yeah, oh, yeah. I love that. Oh, Adam's going to love hearing that. Yeah, he will. Yeah. It's my she husband who sings the jingle. I used to hear yes. it. Yeah. And he and his friend wrote it for us. And almost any time we talk about the podcast, all he wants to know is like, do they like the jingle? <laughs> like, do they like his little contribution? But thank you. I'm glad that she does. Yeah, she loves it. Yeah. That's awesome. Her current jingle that she loves right now is um, a cover is not a book's. So open it up and take a look. Oh, I don't oh, know, that's, oh, that's, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, cute, cute. I like it. Because we both love to read, so. Aw, love that. Well, Kylie, thank you so much yes. for coming on the podcast with us. Thank you so much for having me. I feel so honored and nice to have you close by. We're both in California, so. Yeah, please keep us posted on what's going on. Yeah, yeah, let us know what direction you take. Yeah. All right, I will. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So, Smarties, we hope you enjoyed meeting Kylie Yates. We will, at some point in the next couple of months, I would imagine, do a follow-up episode for all the on-air coaching calls that we've invited onto the podcast, and we'll give you an update on what Kylie has discovered and what's happening with her next. Steph, what were your big takeaways from the episode? You know, the big takeaways, I think, you know, people are finding out about our profession and don't know where to start. Right. And the association is a great place to start. And I think that 
It's important to note that it's not going to all look the same. And this is just also our own journey that we've taken. So, you know, this isn't something that the association has asked us to say or we have any knowledge of. Authority. (laughs) Yeah, we have no authority ever whatsoever. But everybody's journey can look a little different. And if you become an educational therapist, you can work in a school. You can do all these different things. You can have a private practice. And the more that it becomes clear that people understand that and doesn't have to all look like one thing, the better. I agree. And I think the other big thing that I took away from this, and I do want to reiterate, this was our experience of becoming educational therapists. There might be other avenues that, quite frankly, we don't know about. Mm -hmm. But the other big takeaway is that our podcast is doing what we hoped it would do. Yeah. And I love talking to people about educational therapy. Yeah, agreed. And about what it can do for the learners that they work with. Quite frankly, what a blessing it's been in our lives to have found this and have found each other. I know we hear a lot from other professionals that they wish that they had the kind of partnership that you and I have. So I just want to say on here, I'm grateful for you, Steph. I'm grateful for you, too. It's good. It's so good. It's good. Yeah. So if you guys have any other questions, hit us up in our Facebook group. Steph and I are committing <laughs> to being more involved in the Smarties of the Learn Smarter Podcast Facebook group. The discussion has been had, guys. So we're going to try. <laughs> yeah. We have ideas on what we want to do. We want to do some more lives. We're hoping that when we have experts on the podcast, we can get them to do a Facebook Live with one of us. What do you guys think? Do you like that idea? Let us know. Yeah. Let us know in the Facebook group. Yeah. So we're looking forward to hanging out with you more there. And I want to remind everybody that we will be having office hours, which we have on the first Thursday of every month on September 5th, 2019 at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So definitely join us for that. That's really casual and fun. And we kind of give you guys an update about what's coming up. In fact, we know people were excited about this episode because you guys told us on the last Facebook Live. Yeah. So we hope it met expectations. Yeah. Let us know if you have any other questions and have a great week. Have a great week.